Hello, welcome to episode six of Freaking Out about Opening Day with Randy Freaking, the podcast about the history and celebrations of Cincinnati's most revered non-religious holiday. Today, we are privileged to have a very special guest, one of the greatest baseball announcers of all time, who retired after the 2019 season after 46 years as a play-by-play voice of the Reds, Marty Brenneman. Reds fans all know he is the best, but I like to do a little research about what others think to confirm our love and respect for the guy we simply call Marty. So I did, and I immediately found a quote by Mike DeCourcy, who was a renowned reporter for the Sporting News. Mike said, quote, Marty is one of the great play-by-play announcers in the history of baseball, up there with the likes of Vin Scully, Ernie Harwell, Jack Buck, and Red Barber. Now, before Marty joins us, I always like to give a brief description of previous episodes so that a listener who may be joining us for the first time can choose one of the previous episodes to listen to without starting at the beginning of the podcast or searching through the episode descriptions because, frankly, most people can't listen to a whole series or are not interested in some episodes. So, in our first five episodes, We first gave an overview of the storied history of opening day in Cincinnati in episode one. Greg Rhodes and I then discussed the special occasions that have occurred on opening day in episode two. Howard Wilkinson joined us as we explored opening day folklore in episode three. And in our fourth episode, John Arardi and I took a deeper dive into the life of Frank Bancroft, who is the father of opening day And we also discussed the impact of females, particularly the Reds, Rosie Reds, and Marge Schott on the opening day festivities. Then in episode five, we did a little history lesson and discussed seven specific years that were among the more interesting or controversial opening days. And we will explore more specific years in the 150-year history of opening day in coming episodes until the opening of the 2020 season whenever that starts. Now let's get a little drum roll, please. Let's welcome someone I have listened to my entire life and who I am fortunate enough to call a friend, the one and only Marty Brenneman. How you doing, Marty? Randy, I'm doing fine, pal. I hope you are, and thanks for having me on with you. Well, it's a great pleasure. You know, Marty, I've listened to your podcast with Jim Day and with Tim Carper, I think you've done two with each of them. All of them were very interesting. And I'm going to try to discuss some new topics today. But let's first deal with the elephant in the room. How are you and your lovely wife, Amanda, and the rest of your family coping with the coronavirus? Well, I guess we're coping with it by a self-imposed quarantine. or I I don't want to use the word isolation because I read a long piece uh, on the Internet the other day that the difference between isolation and quarantine. So it's obviously quarantine. I have not been out a whole lot. Um, I I'm taking this thing uh, seriously. Uh, and especially so because I'm in the age group that, uh, could be most adversely affected by this stuff. So I haven't been out very much in the last week. Uh, the only time I go out is if it's a necessity and, uh, I'm just trying to cope with it. Like I'm sure a lot of other people are. It's, it's, it's a, It's a situation that none of us have ever been exposed to in our lifetime. I don't care how old you might be. 
uh, we've never been down this road before. So every day it seems like something different happens or something different is announced and you just have to roll with the punches and hope that this thing eventually will reach its zenith and, and, and go away. Well, we all know you don't have to be very smart to do TV. How's Tom doing? Tom Brenneman, your son, who's a TV announcer. Yeah, well, they're not very bright. The guys that do TV, Ian Welsh <laughs> and uh, and uh, Jim Day and people like that. So, you know, they they cope with it as best they can. In Tom's case, seriously, Tom Tom has has two kids, and um, they they pretty much I think are are conducting themselves exactly as Amanda and I are. You you have to. I don't. I think if you poo-poo this whole thing, you're just inviting problems. Uh, I mean, I was stunned by the thousands and thousands of young people who were on beaches down in Florida. Yeah, uh, that was unbelievable. If, if, they, if, if they had been my kids, I, somebody's ass would have been kicked because <laughs> I would not have allowed them to be there and yucking it up and drinking and having a big time uh, when the world is involved in, in, in what it's involved in right now. So I, 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 thankfully my family, my, my kids and, and Amanda's mom and dad, hopefully will uh, conduct themselves in a manner befitting the situation that we're involved in. Well, that's great. I'm glad they're all healthy. Hey, Marty, you were kind enough late last year to give Mike Ziliox and I your permission, so to speak, to write a book about you with, without needing to see it first before it was published. And it's just been published and it's called at Titanic struggle colon, the best of Marty Brenneman. I've been a little bit nervous since delivering it to you and Amanda on Tuesday. Uh, so I have to ask, how is it? I think you all did a great job, Randy. I, uh, Amanda and I both went through it from front to back, and I think you did a sensational job. The, the way the book is laid out, um, uh, the way it's broken down as you go through it, um, I never realized I spewed as much crap as I did over 46 years. Uh, Mike did a whole lot better job than I would ever do if someone say, would say to me, sit down and write down all the things that you've used in your broadcast that have been unique to you. I, I, I could not have come up with a fraction of the things that he came up with. And um, I, I just think it's very well done. The pictures are great. Uh, I think the cover is, is, is an eye catcher and, you know, whether you're a Marty Brenneman fan or not, I think uh, a Reds fan would find it extremely interesting uh, to to purchase the book and, 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 and go through it from front to back because I think it's very entertaining and you guys did a great job. Well, I'll tell you, Marty, that's a relief because this show could have been real short if you would have said otherwise. This might have been a five-minute podcast. So, yeah, a, we'd have probably hung up. Yeah, we probably would have. I don't know if I would have yeah. hung up on you or you hung up on me. <laughs> But thank you, and I will pass along your comments to Greg Eckel, who was a tremendous designer on that book, and also to Tony Brunsman at Cincinnati Book Publishing. They'll be very happy uh, to hear that, obviously. So, you know, Marty, uh, speaking of the book, we made the book what I would call a quote book about all of your Martyisms, as we call them, you know, terms you use and added to the Dictionary of Baseball, and your funny and interesting commentary during games. First, is there a reason why you think baseball broadcasting kind of allows you to have so much fun on the air? Yeah, I think there's one major reason why. Because we have so much time to fill um, as opposed to doing a basketball game or or doing a football game or a hockey game or whatever it might be. 
we we are, or in my case, I was involved from a broadcast uh, perspective, the most conversational sport there is. And, and you have so much time to fill because, you know, I've said a million times, nothing happens until the pitcher throws the ball. And if you can't ad lib, uh, in whatever manner you feel is fitting, then you can't broadcast baseball. And, and so I think, uh, you know, if you go back in time, uh, and, and try as best you can, it would be an impossible task to chronicle uh, the history of play-by-play sports, not just baseball. You, you'd find probably more announcers uh, who stood out uh, because of certain things that they said over the period of time in which they did the sport that made them stand out more so than football or basketball or hockey. And again, I think it has to do with the amount of time that you have to fill. And I think it lends itself uh, to, to uh, as best you can, inject your own personality, but at the same time, and even more importantly, uh, make people aware of what's going on on the field. Uh, it's never been a question in my mind. And as I said, I've done basketball, I've done football, I've never done ice hockey, but I liken that to, to uh, professional basketball in terms of a pace. Uh, Baseball is the hardest sport of all to do. Uh, simply because of what I said a moment ago, if you can't add lib and you can't add lib cogently or intelligently, you can't broadcast baseball. Uh, I, hockey and, and basketball, uh, I liken to a wind-up toy. And you wind it up and you turn it on at 7.05 when the ball goes up in the air or they drop the puck. And, and you talk nonstop until the game is over. You don't have a lot of time to add lib. Yeah. And so I, I think from a pure art form, if there is a pure art form in play-by-play sports, without any question, it would be baseball. Well, you've done an outstanding job. You know, speaking of basketball, that reminds me, you used to do the ABA back in the day, in your younger days, and then you did the NCAA uh, basketball games. You did the tournament. And I almost hate to bring this up because the friends down the Commonwealth might be bothered don't, by don't this. Don't be afraid to bring that up. Yeah, tell me about the yeah, – let's – I think it's your most famous basketball call, isn't it? Well, I, I think it's arguably the greatest basketball game that's ever been played. And and had Kentucky won that game, I'd have, I'd have said the same thing. I, I was purely – I had no bias at all. I did that on the NCAA radio network. It was played at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. And uh, the game that Christian Leitner hit the shot that won it in overtime for Duke um, – I, uh, I I truly believe it. It, it. it was such a great game that there have been books written about that game, just like uh, there has been books written about game six of the 1975 World Series between the Reds and the Red Sox. You know, that's a, um, that's a great it, book, by the way. Game six by, I think, Mark Frost. Who became a very good friend of mine. Um, and I still stay in touch with him and uh, very talented guy, did a tremendous job, a lot of research, talked to players. And it's if for someone who's never read the book, uh, do yourself a favor if you're a baseball fan and, and, and get game six because it's a, it's a great baseball book. Yeah, I absolutely love that book because it had so much biographical information about the players, the managers. And that was such a special game. It's probably one of the greatest uh, World Series games of all times in, in terms of interest. You know, there had been rain delays in that series and everything else, and then they play that game, and Fisk hits that ball inside the left field foul pole, and 
Fortunately, we went to Game 7. You know, the, Mark Frost hardly mentioned what happened in Game 7. He puts about a line at the well, end of the book what, saying, hey, by the way, the Reds won Game 7. Well, that's the way it was when we, we, the club went to Boston to play the Red Sox about, I don't know, 18 years ago. Uh, and it was the first time that I'd been back to, to Fenway Park since uh, the, the seventh game of the World Series in 75. And uh, they chose that series to dedicate the left field foul pole uh, <laughs> to Carlton Fisk and the right field foul pole to Johnny Pesky, who was a great Red Sox uh, figure for a million years in just about every conceivable role from a player, <clears throat> excuse me, to a manager, to a front office guy, to a coach. And I made the comment uh, during the course of the game. I said, if you didn't know any better, you'd never, you'd have thought the Red Sox won the World Series because <laughs> there was no mention made at all of Game Seven. But it, they made a big deal about Game Six, and that's all they had to hang their caps on. Yeah, they should have dedicated center field to Joe Morgan. I think he had the game-winning hit in Game Seven. He did flare to center. Yeah, yeah. So okay, enough of that, Marty. Uh, you know, you have so many unique phrases. Uh, like when you said frozen rope to describe a line drive or when a batter swung at a pitch and missed by a wide margin and you would say he could not have hit that ball with an ironing board. Were those things that were spontaneous and you liked them and then repeated them or did you somehow prepare to say them in advance? In other words, think of them at home and go, oh, that'd be kind of cool to call it a frozen rope. No, I've never... I've never thought that. I, I, I've not, I've, I'm not, I was not good enough to, to uh, plan something that I'm going to say uh, or sit down and write phrases that would be applicable to certain events in a baseball game. Um, but I'd be, to be honest with you, a lot of the stuff that I use, I, I've heard way, I heard way, way back um, that might have been uttered by a fan or a scout or um, uh, a, a broadcaster when I was a kid growing up in Virginia in the 50s. And as far as frozen rope is concerned, uh, quite honestly, I think the first time I ever heard that, Joe Nuxhall used it. Oh, really? Um, so, yeah, I think Joe used it before I ever did. So, you know, it was a combination of things. Uh, one of the great lines I've ever heard, uh, it, and I, 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 I don't take credit for, for this one, I heard Tommy Lasorda make reference to a guy one time as he was such a bad hitter, he couldn't hit water if he fell out of a boat. And uh, <laughs> I've never used that for Reds players, although I could name some that couldn't do it. But uh, I think I periodically, uh, I've done it for players uh, on other teams. I thought that was one of the greatest lines I'd ever heard when Lasorda said it. Yeah, uh, I know that's uh, one of the phrases so, we've we've had in the book. Yep, and I think it's a great line. Um uh, so, you know, it's, it was a combination of things. A lot of them are things that I thought of on the spur of the moment. Uh, but in terms of sitting down and planning a lot of the stuff, I said, I, there's no way in the world I could have done that. Well, you know, we'll get to Joe a little bit later, but how about your famous catchphrase? And this one belongs to the Reds. How did that come about? Well, it came about a week or two weeks into my first season in 74. And, um, Dave Concepcion got a hit in uh, the bottom of the ninth inning of a game at Riverfront to win it. And I just said it. It was a spontaneous reaction to a game-winning base hit. And I was driving back home that night uh, to uh, 
Anderson Township. And I thought, you know what, that's that's not a bad line to use when they win ball games. Never have any idea that uh, over the next three years, including 74, when they fell behind early and almost caught the Dodgers in September, but for four, five, and six, and even in the years later that they didn't win uh, to get to the postseason, they won so many times during the regular year that it became a catchphrase, and it was something that uh, I decided to stay with. The biggest mistake I ever made was not having it copyrighted uh, <laughs> because I think there are people that made a hell of a lot of money off of that line, and I was the one that came up with it. Um, and, and there were times over the course of my career I, I don't know. I would say as many, maybe as, as four dozen, five dozen times that the Reds won a game in a matter that shocked me so much that I wouldn't say it. <laughs> and I know back in, in the mid seventies, when it finally caught on, uh, there were people who would call WLW radio, our flagship station and say, is there something wrong with him? Uh, is he not going to say it anymore? <laughs> and when that occurred, I realized that I'd, I'd come up on something that that fans could relate to. And, and, you know, that's, that's, I guess that'll be something as far as the legacy is concerned that, that I've left behind and hopefully will stand me in good stead for a lot of years. Well, you know, thank God you had that car ride home and you weren't distracted by somebody and you had some time to think about it and you decided it was a great line and used it throughout the, your career because it is a, it is a fantastic line and, and probably your most famous uh, phrase, I would think, other than at Titanic Struggle. You know, Mike Ziliox, who had the uh, Twitter account at Titanic Struggle, told me the same thing. His followers were so used to him tweeting out your funny phrases or interesting comments or controversial comments that if he didn't tweet out something within a minute or two, somebody would be hollering at him like, hey, man, are you asleep? <laughs> what are you doing? And he's trying to raise three kids. He's married. <laughs> he he was a little bit of a nut. He listened to 90% of the Reds I games for, la for last 10 years. I don't know how in the world he did it. I swear to God, I don't, Randy. I, I mean, trying to balance a job uh, with Cincinnati Bell and trying to uh, maintain uh, a family of kids and his wife and then all the while listen to, I don't know, He's a better man than me. I'd have never listened to Marty Berman all that time. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I think the only one who listened as much as Mike was probably your lovely life, uh, lovely wife, Amanda. Yeah. I think and she, she's, she's my biggest critic. She would, she would, I would say something on the air and she would text me, said, that's the stupidest thing you've ever said. <laughs> Do not say that again. <laughs> or it doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about? And thank God for her because uh, one, she's a, she's a most astute, uh, baseball fan in terms of understanding the game of any woman that I've ever met. And, and on top of that, um, she has been totally devoted to me, not only personally, but also in my job and would listen and would, would critique and 99% of the time, whatever criticism she leveled at me, she was right. And so, uh, thank God for her. And, Thank God for her love of the game and, and, and be, we could talk intelligently about strategies and stuff like that. And, and she, she truly understands the game. Unlike any woman I've ever known. Well, she sounds like the better half for sure. 
Hey, uh, speaking well, I don't of, know if, I don't know if I'd say that. Come on, Marty. I don't know come if I'm on. that far. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get the man yeah, out yeah. here and see what she thinks. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, we were talking about Mike's uh, Twitter account at Titanic Struggle, and that was another signature phrase, uh, which <laughs> you said each night when you announced the attendance. How in the world did that come up, and why in the world did you call every baseball game a Titanic Struggle? I don't. I don't know. I you know. That, I tell people that's the that's the uh, that's the demented mind of a left hander. Um, I, I don't. I don't know. I can't tell you the first time I uttered that phrase. I it might have been back in the early seventies when I was doing Triple A baseball in Norfolk. Uh, I don't really know. Uh, although I mean, you know, if you if you take the term uh, as it is, it's too very talented teams, uh, athletically blessed or that are going head to head and, and, uh, the best team wins on a given night. And far as I'm concerned, that's a Titanic struggle. So every night they played and every night I was behind the mic, that's the way it was when it came to announcing the attendance. Right. That's fantastic. Uh, I love the phrase. Uh, Hey Marty, you've also been a huge supporter of the Reds community fund. Uh, particularly with your annual golf outing that I understand will continue in the future after your retirement, at least for a few years, and the Dragonfly Foundation. Uh, can you describe to us why it is that you're drawn to those two particular organizations? Well, the the, the Reds Community Fund obviously is an, an internal branch of the Reds organization run by Charlie Frank, who does an incredible job. Uh, I've said a million times that if I – and had a startup company or I had something whereby I needed to raise funds uh, and a substantial amount, the first person I would hire would be Charlie Frank. Um, I think he does an incredible job. And, and, and Charlie came to me one day, I don't know how many years ago, I don't know how many years we've done this tournament, I think 12, 13, 14 years. And he asked me, he said, how, what do you think about uh, as a fundraiser for the community fund? We, uh, conduct a golf tournament and put your name on it. Would you be agreeable to that? Well, I was thrilled to death. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I took up golf seriously in the mid nineties. Uh, I have never been very good at it, but nobody loves a game more than I do. Um, and, and I was thrilled that they, they would ask me to put my name on it and also help them in any way I could to make the tournament as big a success as it possibly could be. And, and so that's the way it started. And with tremendous bias, uh, talking about uh, events such as this, where there are probably more in the city of Cincinnati in any calendar year than there are in any other city in the United States. I think ours is the best. Um, we, you know, we offer uh, included in the price to play as, as a, as a night at, uh, at uh, Belterra entertainment, a fine dinner and program, and then golf in one of the best golf courses in the tri-state area, a a, a, a Fazio design golf course. And so I, I just think it's, it's, it's the one that gives people the more bang for their buck than any of them. And as far as the dragonfly, that, that was a, an interesting turn of events that, that created uh, my connection with the foundation and that had to do with the night that I had my head shaved 
uh, back in uh, 2010 or whatever the year was. I lose track of time, but uh, I'd made a bet uh, early in the year with Chris Spire, who was Dusty Baker's bench coach. Um, the Reds had just swept a series at home against Milwaukee and they'd gotten, we were on the plane, the Delta charter sitting on the tarmac, getting ready to fly to wherever the club was flying to. And Chris and I were talking and, and he said, you know, I really, this is early in the year. And he said, I really believe this team is, is capable of winning 10 games in a row. And I said, Oh, I don't think so. And he said, you don't. And I said, no, I don't think they are. He said, why? I said, well, I, I think their offense is too inconsistent. Um, to generate that type of run production over a 10 game period that would allow them to do it. And he said, well, what would you do if they did? And I said, <laughs> I said, I don't know. What, w- what would you have me do? He said, would you shave your head? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'd shave my head. 130,000% convinced <laughs> right. that this would never come to pass. This was in May, I think. Well, then in, in in um, in July, uh, we're in Denver to begin the Reds are to begin a three game series, and they'd won seven games in a row going into the opening game of the series on a Friday night. I had not still had not crossed my mind. I'd completely forgotten about that phone conversation. <laughs> right. So they win Friday, they Uh-oh. win Saturday. Amanda's Uh-oh. with me on the trip. Uh oh. And so Sunday. Still, nothing has been said, and I walk into the clubhouse at Coors Field on Sunday, and players are bouncing off four walls, and uh, <laughs> everybody's looking around at me. And I walked, and Spire walked up to me, and he said, "What do you think?" I said, "I, I don't know what's going on." He's, I said, "What? What? This is something's <laughs> going on that's not uh, out of the norm." He said, "What happens today if we win?" Uh oh. I said, well, God bless them. If they win, that's 10 games in a row. He said, there's more to it than that. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, let, let me recall a conversation you and I had back in May. <laughs> Standing on the plane, in the plane, getting ready to go. And he started 15 seconds in. I said, stop. <laughs> he said, you remember now? I said, yep. He said, what are you going to do if they win today? I said, I'm going to shave my head. So the, 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 God bless the club. They picked up on it immediately. And, uh, of course, they won that game. And uh, they had planned, they had planned anyway, on the following Friday night at home, a game against Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. to honor me on my 70th birthday. And um, uh, they had planned, they said, we'll do it that night uh, after the game at home plate. Shave your head. I said, that's fine. <laughs> well, then Monday, I got a call from uh, a buddy of mine, John Burns who's one of my close friends and he's and a wonderful John, guy. Is, he really is. Um, he's one of my dear friends and John called me on the phone and, and John was connected, uh, with dragonfly unbeknownst to me. And he had gone over to, uh, to children's hospital to visit some kids there. And a little girl had a, a t-shirt on and the shirt says, I'm still me. Hmm. And it, it it had to do with kids that have gone through chemotherapy and and had lost their hair in the process, and how other children, healthy children, look at them funny, hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. and and it it can be a very hurtful thing, especially if words follow the look, mm-hmm. and so that's what the the three words re- referred to, and and John said, 
would you wear one of those shirts on Friday night? Um, because we're, they're going to have people on the field. I said, I'd, I'd, I'd be happy to. So he got me a t-shirt. I, and, and the Reds had come up with a Reds jersey uh, with the seven, number 70 on the back to uh, honor my birthday. So I put the t-shirt on underneath the jersey, put the jersey on, came down on the field, um, sat in the chair. Uh, the guy who had cut my hair, Jeff Duckwall, who was my, I don't want to say my hairdresser at the time because I, I was losing all the hair I had. So it really didn't make any difference, <laughs> but I, I had Jeff come and, and cut my hair. And, and when it was finished, um, I got up and I took off the Reds Jersey and displayed the t-shirt. And there were these three little girls, um, mm. all three with the t-shirt on and, 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 without any hair at all. And I walked over and I opened my arms up to them and they all three came into my arms and I kissed each of them on the top of the head. And at that point I got to know the folks that were, um, so instrumental in, in, in what has become a very successful foundation now over the years. And, and I I think a lot of people are aware that you know, you have uh, you have uh, families that come into town for a child that needs to be che- treated for a blood disease or or cancer at Children's Hospital, and and you know they don't know anybody, uh, they don't uh, they're not familiar with the town. They have so much time on their hands; they're devastated because of the condition of their child. And the Dragonfly formed uh, the programs that got tickets for people, uh, families to go to events and, and to take their minds off of uh, the family uh, situation that loomed over them like a dark cloud all the time. And I thought what their endeavors were, were wonderful. And so I got involved with them. And, um, you know, I don't take any credit for my involvement. They feel like my involvement and, and who I was helped get them off the ground. And maybe that's true. I don't know. But it, I don't. It, I don't it, think there's it, any it, doubt about that. Well, it, it it just struck home to me, um, to to be involved with them, and and down the road probably I'll I'll be I'll be doing more for them, uh, now that I'm retired. But uh, it it's just it's it's grown by leaps and bounds. Uh, they have their own facilities now, over in the in the hospital district on Oak Street. And, and it's just, uh, I, I mean, I can talk forever about the things they've done and, and the people I've met and the children that I've come into contact with, uh, tragically and unfortunately, some of whom are no longer with us. Uh, but it, it just, it's, it, it's incomprehensible to me that a child can be six, seven, eight, nine years old, and they've known nothing but hospitals and they've known nothing but pain. Uh, that, that's hard for me to to, to get my head around. It truly is. And, and so I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of them. I'm honored to say that I have a work with the dragonfly people and, and I plan to continue to do that as well as the Reds uh, community fund. Yeah, that's, that's tremendous. You do that, Marty. Um, you know, I've always said that one of the best nights, I think maybe the greatest night in Cincinnati sports history at Riverfront stadium occurred in 1984 when Pete Rose returned, and that place was packed and went crazy when he hit that triple in the first inning. Uh, but I'll tell you, at Great American Ballpark, 
And I went to playoff games at, at the GABP, of course, that weren't very good. Uh, but I'll tell you, I think in all the years at Great American Ballpark, that night where you shaved your head was the most special night of them all. And I think it even topped your retirement day, Uh Frankly, I mean, that was a tremendous day when you retired on September 26th and everybody stayed afterwards. But on that night when they played the Pirates and you shaved your head, nobody left that ballpark. It was it was the most amazing well, thing it, I've ever seen. I mean, everybody stuck around. It was it was and I've said it's the most uh, special night in, in my career in a ballpark uh, where where the key ingredients to that memory were not really baseball related. Exactly. It came after a baseball game. Um, and, and, and it was a very emotional night, just like the September 26th of last year was, uh, for me personally. Um, but it, it was something that, you know, I'll always carry with me and, and, uh, I'll never forget. Uh, Chris Byer said to me within minutes after the whole thing ended, he said, "Boy, you, you, you're a man of your of your word." I said, "Well, hell, I, I, how would I have looked if I'd have made that bet in May?" And when they went ten in a row, I said, "I'm just kidding." <laughs> I said, "My credibility <laughs> would have been in the toilet," so I had no choice but to go with it. And as it turned out, it was a good thing because I've kept my hair short mainly because Amanda said she'd leave me if I ever let it grow out. And uh, I couldn't afford that. So I've kept it short. Uh, I've become a liberated man because I threw the hairspray away and the, uh, <laughs> and the hair dryer away. And, and you always uh, loved your easier. hair. Well, I did. Let's but face I, it. But I, it's much easier getting, getting ready to go in the morning when you don't have to worry about getting the hair dryer out. So I, uh, it, everything about that night was thumbs up as far as I was concerned. Yeah, I've, I've never seen so many people cry while you're getting your head shaved in my entire life. They saw those kids out on the field, and there really wasn't a dry eye in the house. But, hey, I, I want to go back to the game. They've won nine. You remember your bet while you're announcing or before you're announcing that 10th game, that 10th game in a row. And you've always been respected for being very obje- a very objective broadcaster. You know, you're not really rooting for the Reds. We all know you're a fan of the Reds, but you call a game objectively. But what were you thinking in those late innings? Was there any part of you thinking, eh, maybe they could lose this game so I don't have to shave my head? Uh, yeah, they, uh, they jumped out in front of uh, the Rockies very quickly. Uh, in the first two or three innings, I think they scored seven or eight runs. And and in those innings, they'd walk off the field and they'd look up at the radio booth and they would use their fingers like a pair of scissors and they would, you know. So, but I, no, it never crossed my mind. Uh, I never, I was rooting like the Dickens for them. I wanted them to win the 10th game in a row and, and uh, to shave my head. I, I it, Amazingly, it never bothered me about thinking about that week, thinking God knows I'm going to lose my hair on Friday night. It never crossed my mind uh, as a negative. Uh, it was it was almost like an adventure. It was like something was going to occur that I had never experienced before, nor never would have condoned before. Uh, but circumstances dictate that I I was going along with it, and and I and I you know I said so be it. I never I was never concerned. Uh, at all about having to have all that hair shaved off. And, and I was thrilled to death that they won those 10 games in a row. 
Well, those are two great organizations, and that's why Mike and I have decided to donate a portion of the proceeds from the book to both the Reds Community Fund and the Dragonfly Foundation, and I hope we can raise a lot of money. Um, But enough of that shameless talk about the book, uh, although it is available at bestofmarty.com and Joseph Beth and Cincy Shirts. Uh, yeah, God bless, God bless Cincy Shirts and, and Joseph Beth for selling the book. I think that's really great, and, and, and those folks deserve kudos for it, too. But this podcast, Marty, is really devoted to Red's opening day history, and I have to say one of the most memorable opening days in history was 1974 when you called your very first game as the play-by-play announcer for the Reds. And of all things, Hank Aaron ties Babe Ruth's home run record in his very first at-bat and literally within five minutes of your regular season debut to Reds fans. Now, Marty, were you a little bit nervous before that game? I really, you know what? I wasn't, Randy. I I was more awed over the fact that there were 55,000 people uh, in the ballpark. I'd never, obviously, coming out of AAA baseball, working as I did in the International League, and having never seen uh, a crowd that big anywhere, I was awed by uh, the the number of people. I was awed by how special opening day was in Cincinnati, my first taste of it. As far as the possibility that that Aaron uh, was was going to be in the lineup after a lot of controversy, uh, and and obviously would have a number of at bats to possibly tie, and maybe even break Ruth's record in 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 the one game or in the series. That's right. That that I know ne- it never crossed my mind. I I never obviously, as I said earlier, I never planned on what I would say if he hit one that day to tie the record. Um, and and so I I was there were other things that that blew me away, but the prospect of calling uh, a record tying home run uh, did it really did not uh, bother me a bit. I I guess I was too stupid to worry about something as historical as that would be if it happened. Um, but I I was you know I I was hoping that it would happen, and I was not concerned about how the call would come out. Well, it came out great. I know it's one of your best calls, actually, um, and I, I think that probably reassured uh, Dick Wagner and Red's ownership about selecting you. I mean, you were, what's 31 or 32 years old back then, and um, I kind of remember a spring training story before that opening day in 1974 where maybe you were a little bit nervous. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I think that's a, that's what the, how, how the mind does tricks on you. Uh, uh, the Reds played their opening spring training game in Bradenton uh, against the Pirates. Now, I was nervous going into that game because now you know I've been in Cincinnati on for one month. I'd, I'd come from living in Virginia Beach, where I was doing ABA basketball and AAA baseball, to Cincinnati, and my first day on the job was February first, seventy four, and the club sent me hither and yon everywhere to meet every writer and broadcaster and get to get my name and my face out uh, in front of the public as the guy who was succeeding Al Michaels. And so I go to spring training and now they get ready to play the first game. And now I got to put my act on display. And, Mm -hmm. and I was concerned about how that would work. And uh, they played the pirates on the road and I got through the broadcast and I felt like a, it was it was okay. 
Uh, game one, I think I felt in my own mind that I passed the test. And so the next day they opened their home schedule in spring training at Al Lopez Field in Tampa, where they trained at the time. And uh, they were playing the Chicago White Sox, I think. And uh, we had an engineer that we had hired. Uh, we we hired engineers uh, down there, and we'd have, uh, we'd have a handful of the same guys. And this guy was a fellow by the name of Ken Kimball who was from Baltimore and would come down to Florida during spring training to get out of the bad weather and would engineer some of our games. And so he cued me to go on the air and I was, I was loose and, and, and confident. And I went on the air and said, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Reds baseball from Al Michaels field in Tampa, Florida. (laughs) I was devastated. I knew what I'd said as soon as I said it. Yeah. And I was, I was stunned. I, I, and, and Nuxall did four double takes and (laughs) I finally got through, got through the half inning. And the first thing out of his mouth was, he said, I'll be damned. He said, we haven't even had the first pitch of the regular season yet. And I've got material for the banquet circuit next fall. (laughs) Uh, It it was just one of those things, you know? Yeah. And of course, Al found out about it. Oh, uh, the my beat gosh. writer for the Inquirer at that time was a guy by the name of Bob Herzl. And Bob's an old friend of mine, is now the sports editor of the newspaper in Morgantown, West Virginia. And uh, he and Al were really tight. And he, I think he called Al within 10 minutes after I'd said it. And so Al knew about it. And periodically, when I'd cross paths with him, inevitably, if I was around him long enough, Al, Al that is, he'd bring it up. And uh, it, it was, it, I was mortified. I would, that might be the only time I was really embarrassed. There may have been other times, but nothing <laughs> as prolific as that was. Well, and I know, uh, Al Michaels has a great deal of respect for your career because he gave you an outstanding tribute, uh, when you retired and he claims that he resigned so that you could take over the broadcast, one of the greatest baseball teams of all time. He was just being a nice guy going to San Francisco and, doing games for a losing team. Sure he did. He, uh, <laughs> let me tell you something. He got paid a King's ransom to go to the giants. And, and the funny thing is years and years and years later, when he and, and Chris Collinsworth hooked up to do, uh, I guess it's Sunday night NFL football, uh, on NBC. And it become one of the great teams in the history of, of, of NFL broadcasting. And periodically I'd run into Chris around town. And Chris would say, Al's complaining again. And I said, what's that? He said, he keeps bringing up the fact that you got two World Series rings and you, and he never got one. <laughs> right. And I would have some rather choice words to Chris to pass on to Al. And so when I talked to Al a couple of times last year, I'd say, look, do me a favor. I said, you, you, you're whining like a, a little baby. I said, nobody put a gun to your head and said you had to leave Cincinnati, go to the Giants. You took the money and ran. I said, so don't, I don't want to hear any more complaining about the fact you never got a World Series ring. <laughs> hey, now, Marty, I got a little sidetrack there uh, with your spring training story. But, you know, we talked about the opening day game in 1974, your first. But have there been other opening day games that particularly stick in your memory in your 46 years of broadcasting for the Reds? You know, the specifics of, of any of them are, are really clouded for me now. I, I, I Because there have been so many of them. I can remember one in the late 70s, and I'm sure you probably remember the day when 
uh, we all woke up on opening day morning and there were four to six inches of snow on the ground. And, oh yes. And, uh, and the Reds were due to play that afternoon at two Oh five or whatever the time was. And, uh, I marvel at how the grounds crew in the, uh, from the time they went to work that morning, uh, were able to get every speck of snow completely out of sight. I mean, not only did they get it off the field, but uh, all the seats were clean in the ballpark. And, and uh, I think Frank Pastore pitched that day. Uh, Tom Seaver, I think, was supposed to pitch, but uh, came down with uh, a fever mm-hmm. uh, on the morning. And Frank stepped in, God rest his soul. And, and, and uh, I think he pitched a shutout that day. I think he did. Um, yeah. And I remember um the uh, uh this this was only probably 10 years ago when Ramon Hernandez had a home run in the bottom of the ninth inning to win an opening day game at uh at Great American Ballpark but I don't I don't remember too many opening days I really don't I'm I'm so caught up in it and I'm I'm so blasted busy uh leading up to the actual game broadcast that I uh I really don't you know have a great recollection of a lot of the opening day games. The one that Reds and the Dodgers played. Um, and I remember that because of what transpired afterwards. And I think that was in 75 or 76 where the Reds opened against the Dodgers. Um, and, and then after that series of, of, uh, four games, they went to Houston and then they went into Los Angeles to play the Dodgers. So they played the Dodgers, like seven or eight of the first 10 or 11 games. Um, and and uh, the Reds won all the games at, at, uh, at Riverfront by one run. And then they after going to Houston, they went into L.A. and L.A. swept that series. And so the two best teams in the division and arguably the best two teams in the league had to play seven or, or eight games in the first 11 or 12 games of the season. And, and they were typical of the kind of games that the Reds and the Dodgers played during that period when it was the greatest rivalry in baseball and one of the great rivalries in sports. Yeah, that's almost like having the World Series in April. Uh, That's correct. Arguably the two best teams in baseball playing each other the first seven games out of ten. Kind of crazy, uh, but I'm sure it filled up the stands on rather cold weather in Cincinnati. Um, well, all, all the games were sold out, and all the games were sold out in L.A. That's the way that was when those two teams played. Well, that was a heck of a rivalry, as we both know. Hey, uh, Marty, we talk about the growth of the festivities that surround opening day on this podcast a lot. And I was kind of wondering, have you ever been able to witness the Finley Market Parade? Randy, Joe and I rode in the parade one year. Okay. We were not, we were not the Grand Marshals, but he and I rode together uh, in a car. I I don't remember the circumstances of why it even happened, but we did. And that's the only, only time I had any connection whatsoever uh, with the Finley market parade. And, uh, you know, unfortunately we know what happened with this one and, and hopefully in the months to come, one, we get back to playing baseball and two, it'll come at a time when the Finley market parade can be staged again. But, uh, um, it, it, uh, I, I'm, 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 I was really looking forward to it because it, it will be an experience unlike anything I've ever enjoyed in this town relating to the game of baseball. And, 
and I'm glad that uh, whether it's this year or whether it's next year, I'll be able to participate in the matter that the folks at Finley Market had planned for me to be. Yeah, well, when you rode with Joe, you really had to deviate from your normal schedule because I know you show up at the ballpark like six hours before the game starts to get ready, right? You interview the manager, you talk to players, you talk to the other team to get ready, you organize your scorebook. I know you've got some pencil system going where you put certain things in certain colors. and um, So I guess you had to kind of back off that year. You had to prepare maybe the day before or in maybe the hour or two before the uh, game actually started. You could probably finish your preparation. Yeah, you know, I it, it, as much as I would have enjoyed being a part of it uh, long before the one, the next one that comes up, I just certainly I had a certain routine about opening day um, that that you know I did I really did not want to break, and that was the biggest reason why uh, my appearance ha- has been next to the time that Joe and I rode in the parade nil because I do get down there early and. And, uh, you know, it, it's cert- there are certain requirements or certain responsibilities for me personally on opening day that I don't have uh, from after game one. And, and, and things are really rather normal when you play uh, the second game on through the rest of the year, unless there's a certain magnitude of a game or games that make them stand out. So uh, I'm just happy that I'll be in a position now to, to be able to take part in it and enjoy to the fullest extent without having to be concerned about getting to the ballpark and getting ready for a ball game. Now, Marty, I'm pretty sure I was listening to the radio last September. And I think Jeff Brantley asked you whether you'd participate in the parade this year as a grand marshal. And you said there was not a chance. And all of a sudden I read in the paper, you're going to be the grand marshal of the parade this year. What in the I world? I don't remember Brantley asking me that. You, you don't remember that? All right. It might have been one of those. I don't remember him. All right. No, not, not while I was working, I couldn't. Oh, that's uh, right. I've always said that. Yeah, I've always said as long as I was broadcasting that it, simp- it, didn't, it didn't work for me for, as far as my game preparation was concerned. Right. But, but uh, you know, when they asked me, I, uh, I was thrilled. And, and like I say – it's going to be even better because um, I won't have to be concerned about working once it's over at the ballpark as a broadcaster. I'll be able to go to the ballpark and and enjoy the game as a fan. Okay. Hey, hey, speaking of last September, I know you've said many times you've retired at the right time and have no regrets. And believe me, I think you made the right decision. But tell us how you felt. Uh, you know, your emotions walking out of the ballpark after the ceremony last September 26th, and maybe compare that to how you felt arriving at spring training this year, knowing that you were not there to work. If you know what I mean. Well, I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't know that I put a whole lot of thought into it. I, I I know I did when I walked out of that radio booth for the last time. Uh, I, I, I know I was conscious of the fact that, uh, this was the end of it for me. And, um, even, even in, in, in walking down the hall and mm-hmm. to the elevator and down to the field level and into the private parking lot where we and the players park, um, it, there was never any, uh, tinge of regret. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and there wasn't any when I went to spring training. I um, I told people all winter that the first test was going to be spring training. And in terms of doubting my decision based on my being out there um, in February and March, uh, that I'd made a mistake that it never crossed my mind. All it did was reinforce the fact that I'd made the right decision. Um, you know, I, I, I felt years ago that one, I wanted to retire when I was healthy and when I was able to go and do things that I wanted to do when I wanted to do them with Amanda. Secondly, that I went out while I was still on top of my game and, and I felt like I was, uh, and I know a lot of guys who stayed too long. Um, I think there's some in the business today who have hung around too long. And I think your work suffers because of that. And people don't want to remember you as a guy who should have retired five years ago. Um, and, and the other thing is that I pretty much went out on my own terms. And so I, I can't ask for any more than that. 46 years is long enough to do anything. And, and so when I reached that decision, I didn't reach it without a lot of thought beforehand. Um, and a lot of conversation, I mean, and I talked about it and, um, I, I truly believe that the one person who never thought it was going to happen, even through all the season in 2019 and all the things, you know, the recognition and other ballparks that this was my last year and, and the things that were so wonderful that the Reds had planned for the last three days. The one person who never thought it would come to fruition was my son. <laughs> Tom never thought it was going to happen. Every time somebody would bring it up, he said, believe me, he'll be back. He'll be back. <laughs> and so he said it enough times that I asked him, I said, you really don't believe I'm going to retire? He said, I do not. And I don't know whether it was because he didn't want me to. Probably it was a feeling born out of that more than anything. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, a lot of people never get an opportunity to work alongside your son or Right. Or, uh, spend time on the road with your son and, and, and occasionally not as much in the latter years as I'd wanted to uh, broadcast a game with him. And, and so I think it was more born out of that than anything. Um, and, and I think he was also concerned that I was making the wrong decision if I did retire, that I would wake up one morning and say, you know what, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have quit when I did. But I've never had that feeling once. Um, I want Tommy Thrall to enjoy what I enjoyed. And, and I hope that he has the same success in being accepted by the fans as I had. And, and uh, so it was time for a young guy to step in and, and take that job. And, and again, the fact that I'm healthy uh, was very important to me. I, I think the older we get, and I don't say this from a selfish perspective, but I think your number one priority when you get to be the age that I'm at is your health. Because if you're healthy, everything else falls into place. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't want, I don't want Amanda to be a widow, uh, any sooner than she has to be. And so I am concerned about my health and I, I try to walk five miles every day. And, and, and so I, I'm right now I'm on top of the world. I, uh, I, I can, I could not have asked for a, a, a better three days than Phil Castellini and, and, and Karen Forgus and Zach Bonkowski and, and the ownership planned for me, even though I did not want it. 
um, because I didn't feel like they needed to do anything for me. Um, in fact, I was accepted as I was in this town for four and a half decades, over four and a half decades was all the things I needed. I didn't need to be lauded over, but the things that they did were just off the charts, uh, nothing I had ever expected or dreamed of. And, and the, my send off was special in every sense of the word. Yeah, you know, it was so cool when you broadcast uh, some of those games in September <laughs> from, from out in the stands. I, I wish we would have had an opportunity to do that over the years. Uh, I know you and Joe did it sometime in Riverfront Stadium from the red seats. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the old left-hander. You did some 30 <laughs> or so opening days with him. that we have to talk about him. He's part of opening day history. He's obviously part of Red's history. Just give us a little bit about Joe. I mean, we all know how close the two of you were. Well, the amazing thing is, even today, um, when I go out and speak to groups, uh, it, it, it's consistent uh, in every sense of the word, and I can predict it will happen. And that is that whatever group it is, whether it's a sports stag, whether it's a, a fundraiser for a school where there are men and women there, um, everybody wants to hear stories about Joe and the 31 years that we spent together. And I, I'm I'm thrilled that people want to hear those stories because, uh, you know, his legacy lives on and will continue to live on long, long, long after Joe has been gone. Uh, for a lot of reasons, his his son Kim and and his wife Bonnie have done such a great job with the, uh, you know the 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 uh, complex they have out in in uh, in Hamilton to for special needs kids and and the great job that they do in fundraising and having these facilities built things that were near and dear to Joe's heart is his golf tournament, uh, which continues on at the Elks out in Hamilton, even today with the money raised going to scholarships for kids in Butler County to go to college. And, uh, we, we just, uh, the longer we went, the, the closer we got, uh, and again, my love for golf is one of the reasons why I love it so much is because that's the one single thing that really brought Joe and I even closer mm. together than we were. And that when I took up golf in the mid nineties, uh, you know, we'd go on the road and we'd travel our golf clubs and we'd get up at uh, 6.30 in the morning and we'd go to the golf course and we'd be back at the hotel by 11.30 or 12 so Joe could take a power nap and and then go to the ballpark. And so we spent even more time uh, once I took up the game of golf than we did beforehand. Uh, but it, it was just an incredibly interesting relationship. Um, we had such a level of affection for each other, but given the kind of personalities that both of us had, we never ever felt there was a need to articulate that. Right. Um, you know, I knew how he felt about me and, and, and I, and he knew how I felt about him. And, um, it, we never got maudlin about it, uh, until the final game that we worked. And when we knew we had to talk about it, mm -hmm. um, and then we get to the post post game show after the last game of the season, and I started, I said, well, I guess we have to talk about it. And Joe said, yep, I guess we do. And I couldn't get through it. I, I, you know, he said, I guess you need some help. Don't you little buddy? I said, yep, I sure do. And, um, uh, it, it it's just, uh, it was just a unique coming together of two guys 
we used to joke about it because we'd say, well, we're both left-handers and that has a lot to do with it because both of us are a little bit slightly off. Right. Uh, we all know left-handers are crazy. That's right. And, uh, and so it, it was just a relationship that was incredibly good. And, 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 you know, Joe had a great relationship with Al Michaels. He and, he and Al were really close and, and Al was only here for three years and even uh, so close that in the first season we worked in 74, it was probably upwards of three or four months into the season before Joe would get over the habit uh, of calling me anything, calling me Al. Um, huh. And every time he did it, he would catch himself. And every time he did it, he was embarrassed, truly embarrassed. And I would just blow it off. It didn't make any difference to me. I understood. I mean, I, you know, as, as, as good of friends as they were and as the three years they worked together. And, and so it would take time for, uh, you know, Al's name to leave his mind professionally. And, and, and it did. Um, but it, it was a, it was a very special relationship, um, that over and above probably everything else that's happened to me in the years that I've been here, that was the most special thing, uh, the halls of fame and, mm-hmm. and all the rest of that stuff really take a, a take a, a, a secondary position to the relationship we had and how well we got along together. Well, I really hope that, you know, we've got Joe's uh, catchphrase uh, on the facade of Great American Ballpark. I hope Hamilton County gets over their problem with putting, and this one belongs to the Reds, on the other side. But that's another matter. No, they're not. They they're not that smart, Randy. Um, <laughs> what I find what I find interesting is in the wake of my retirement last year, somebody brought that up. Uh, you know about the fact that they put the old left hand rounding third and heading for home, but they couldn't put up. This one belongs to the Reds because who whoever the idiots were, they were on the uh, the, uh, the I don't know whether it was the city council or the uh, Hamilton County commissioners. They felt like that was misleading because it made fans think that the Reds paid for the ballpark. I mean, it's an, so it's that's a, a reason. It's incredibly stupid. It, it's it's idiotic, and nobody had the guts to stand up at the time it was brought up last year and said, "Well, here are the guys that didn't want it up there." Exactly. And you know what? It didn't make any difference to me. I, I don't care. I it didn't. I was it was immaterial to me. I just thought it was the most infantile, politically generated thing I've ever heard of in my life. Uh, it was so stupid. It was laughable. And so I, you know, people would ask me for my comment on it at the time. And I would, just, I had no comment on it. I just, yeah. I wasn't going to give people the impression that, um, you know, these guys broke my heart because they really didn't. Right. Um, I think it was more important to have the old left-handed rounding third and heading for home up there than it was having my catchphrase when they won ball games. But uh, I'd love to be able for somebody to stand up and say, Hey, I'm, I was one of the idiots that voted against that. <laughs> right. You know, but that didn't happen. <laughs> hey, Marty, when you arrived in, in 74, there was a pretty good ball club, I believe, on the field for you to cover. But we've had some tough years for 30 or so of your 46 years. And that required you to be critical occasionally of the players, the team, the managers, and even the front office uh, that we talk a little bit about in the book. Now, how did you survive that? Uh, were the players mad at you? Were they managers, anybody like that, when you would have to be critical? I mean, you had to be an objective uh, play-by-play announcer. Well, you know, I, the, the way I did my games, it, it's a road of, of, of great resistance, of, of uh, a, a, hard, a hard road to travel because a lot of guys who are cheerleaders 
uh, and refer to the, their team as we and the team they're playing as they. Uh, and and I don't knock I don't knock guys' styles. That's that's it's not my position. If they're successful in pulling off being a cheerleader and openly rooting on the air for your team, God bless them. That's fine. I, that simply was not a a uh, a philosophy or uh, an approach that I felt comfortable with. Uh, because I'm not a part of what goes on. I, I've told the story before about uh, a guy who he and his wife are dear friends of Amanda and mine today in Jack and Jolene Billingham. Uh, you know, Jack is one of the truly great people I've ever known on or off the baseball field. And Jolene is just wonderful in her own right. And, and Jack was a very important member of that rotation back in, in the, in the big red machine era. And this came after a game in which, uh, they beaten the Atlanta Braves one night, like 25 to four. And, and, uh, Jack was a winning pitcher. And I made the comment the next day. I said, boy, that was a great game. We played last night. He said, we, <laughs> he said, how many people did you get out? You know, how many, how many hits did, how you, many get? Hits did you have Marty? <laughs> yeah. And, and that was a defining moment in my career because I needed somebody to tell me that and made me realize I'm not a part of what goes on down that field. So for me to root openly, that is- I think a lot of guys want people to, who are listening to them. Those guys that root openly on the air are guys that want people to think, I, you know, he's really in there with these guys and he's a part of what goes on in that clubhouse. No, you're not. And so I don't want people to believe that. Boy, that's because a, I wasn't. That is a great you know, story. And and but and, but as a result, there have been players before that uh, down the road that you know have not been happy, and and the guys that express that unhappiness are the guys that I had the greatest respect for, because you know, most of them will talk about you behind your back, but they won't they won't challenge you over something that you might have said the night before. Uh, I had a, a game one night at Riverfront where um, um, uh, Eric Davis, uh, the Reds were behind in the game two to one, and the Reds came to bat in the bottom of the ninth, and uh, he had a line drive down the right field line and and made the decision to try to go to second base, and the right fielder made a great play cutting off the ball, turning, and made a perfect throw to throw Davis out at second, and I was very critical of him. Um, you know, the old adage is you don't want to be the first or the last out in an inning trying to take an extra base, especially in a game like that. And and so I was very critical of him trying to, to stretch it into a double uh, for a lot of reasons, one of which he had enough speed that if the push came to tug and he needed to try and steal second base, chances are he would have been able to do it. So I was critical. So I go down to the clubhouse the next day and I walk through the clubhouse and he calls me over and we stand in the middle of the clubhouse. He said, you know, I, I know what you said last night. I disagree with your, what you said. I said, well, you know, that's, that's, you're right. But I said, there's no way in the world you can get thrown out at second base on that play. And, and the conversation continues. It, it was very civil. And finally I said to him, I said, look, I said, you know, you and I can talk from now until the cows come home about that play last night. And we're going to disagree. I said, let's just agree to disagree. The next day, he turned the page and everything was normal. Most guys are not that good. Um, uh, and, and, but again, the guys that would, would express their dissatisfaction about something I said are the guys that I had the most respect for. Um, because they're not talking about me behind my back. They're confronting me. And, and the other thing is, 
if you're going to take that approach on the air, you you can't a term we use in in the business. You can't hide behind your microphone. That is meaning, you know, you can say whatever you want to say because you're never going to be on the field and you're never going to show up in the clubhouse to give a player a chance to express his dissatisfaction. I used to walk them down the middle of that clubhouse every day, every day. So uh, if they anybody had something to say to me, they didn't have to come looking for me. I used to tell them, this ain't no barbershop. You don't have to stand in line because I'm going to be there. Um, and that's the only way that you, you have to, if you're going to establish any respect or you're going to establish any credibility, you have to be able to put yourself in a position where if a player has a comment to make to you, he doesn't need to come looking for you. You're going to present yourself in the clubhouse every day. And I tried to do that. Um, uh, you know, I, I think if people that listen, knew that I wanted this club to win. Uh, it's only human nature to say nice things about people as to be critical. But, uh, you know, I've said, I've told players before, I'm going to praise you when you're playing well. I reserve the right to be critical when you don't. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, a lot of players, I, 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 our job, uh, we're, uh, everybody has, uh, has to maintain a certain level of, of uh, ability. Um, in order to please the people that they work with and they work for. And, and I mean, we've all had to answer for, uh, you know, if we did something that did not please the people that sign our paychecks and, and, and nobody has a, 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 a critic free career. And so why should a player feel like I'm, I'm appreciative of the nice things you say, but you can't ever say anything negative about me. And so that's not the way life is. And so, you know, it, 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 it worked out fine. Um, uh, I'll, I'll never forget Ron Oster and I love him like a son. Um, and Ron took a dim view of my approach, I think as a broadcaster, but I think like so many other players, um, when I, when I retired or when he retired and got a chance to look at uh, the game from a, a different perspective than I think uh, most of them have come around to understanding that or, or would have a better understanding of why my approach was as it is and as it was. And uh, he sent a long, uh, sent a long text message to me last summer and it took him a while to write it. And it was really nice. And, uh, you know, talked about my career and, and, and saying all the nice things that he felt he needed to say. And his last line was, he said, but I've, I've got to be honest about one thing. He said, I'm surprised that nobody ever kicked your ass. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and quite honestly, I brought it up. I, I was at the Milford Sports Fundraiser uh, earlier this month. And that was for the Reds Community Fund. There. Yeah, and I, was, I spoke, and, and he, he was there, and he got up, and I told that story. And he got up and he reconfirmed the fact that he wrote the text message and reconfirmed the fact that he was still son, son, stunned that nobody ever kicked my butt. <laughs> well, you know, Ronnie is a great man. He still lives in town here and he supports the Reds Community Fund as well. Sure Marty, we yep. talked about the players. You know, we've got some quotes in the book that I think are absolutely hilarious about other people like former Reds general manager Jim Bowden and Cardinals manager uh, Tony Larusa, 
Did those guys ever give you any grief about what you said on the air? Yeah, Bowden did. He, uh, uh, this back when I was doing TV as well as radio and they were playing the last game of the season. And, uh, I was working, I don't know, the middle three innings, I guess, on television with Chris Welsh up in Montreal. And, um, the Reds were, the Reds won the game, I think 12 or 15 to nothing. And they had a left-hander, Mike Remlinger, who started the game and pitched a complete game. And, and the Reds had blown the game open early. And so, um, we had a lot of time to talk about the season and talk about next year. And I, uh, that was the season that Deion Sanders was involved in a, a, an auto accident, nothing serious here. Um, and, 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 um, his name came up and, and whether or not he'd be back at the following season or not. And I said, you know, that's a good question. Um, uh, but I'm sure that over the course of the winter months, uh, Dion and Jim will pray for one another. Uh, this mm-hmm. had to do with the fact that, that Dion had become a, I think he'd become a born again Christian, uh, sometime during the latter stages of the season. And so I made that comment. And it was it was no malice of forethought. I just said it. And and so um we finished the game and get on the plane and, and come home and the next day I'm out and about doing things on my first off day of the uh, of the season, off season and I come back home and, and my wife said, um uh you got a call from Jim Bowden. And immediately I know why he called. So he wants you to call him. So I called him and he was he was quite upset. He said, you know, I didn't appreciate what you said on the air. And I knew what he meant, but I wanted to hear him say it. I said, <laughs> what are you talking about? And he didn't disappoint me. He said it. He said, I didn't like it at all. Well, that's the last thing he said for about 30 seconds. <laughs> and I, I had some very, 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 very explicit things that I said to him and called him. And, and, uh, uh, I, he used to tell me things. He said, now nobody else knows this. And then the <laughs> next day it would show up in Hal McCoy's article in the Dayton <laughs> daily news. And it, it happened so many times. And I finally said to him, look, do me a favor. Don't tell me anything. I'm not interested in anything you have to say to me that we did not have a great relationship. And so I hung up on him <laughs> and my wife was aghast. She said, I can't believe you would talk to any human the way you talk to him. I said, I got news for you. I'll pick up the phone and call him back and you can hear it again if you want to. (laughs) So he wrote me a letter. He wrote me a letter and said how personally hurt he was because he thought we had a very close relationship. And I said, we had no relationship because you were a damn liar about things. Uh, I think he was very, very instrumental in, in, in getting Tony Perez fired after 44 games as manager of the club. That was terrible. So he, yeah. So he and I, we've never gotten along well. And as far as Tony LaRussa, Tony's never, ever challenged me, but one opening day, um, and, and that followed a number of years in which it was perfectly obvious what I felt about him. I used to sarcastically refer to him as Mr. Baseball. Um, because he acts like he invented the damn game. And so Tom is doing an opening day game. And I don't know where he is. I have no idea where he is, but I get a call while I'm getting ready for my opening day broadcast at great American ballpark. I get a call from Tom that morning. And he said, 
what is your home address? <laughs> and I, I gave, and I said, I gave it to him. I said, what do you need my home address for? And there was a uncomfortable pause. And, and he said, um, I'll, I'll call you later. I'll tell you later. <laughs> I said, okay. So I still don't know where he is. So he calls me back about an hour later. And I said, what the heck is this all about? He said, I'm in St. Louis. I'm doing the Cardinals opening game of the year. And I was in Tony's office and Tony asked me for your home address. He wants to send you his basic principles that he has abided by all these years as Mm -hmm. a manager in the major leagues, because he's a little upset over the things that you say about him on the air. (laughs) And I said, unbelievably about two weeks later uh, under St. Louis Cardinal stationery, I get a handwritten letter from him and uh he itemizes all the things that that all the principles that he has tried to abide by um as a manager in the major leagues and 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 that's the only time that he and i have ever ever had any kind of of communication uh in terms of of and uh, of him displaying his dissatisfaction (laughs) with the way i portrayed him on the air did you keep that letter? Oh, I still got it, pal. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll show it to you sometime. <laughs> All right. Hey, um, I know we're taking up a lot of your time. We talked about Joe, but you know I'm a big fan of Pete, Pete Rose. Yeah. Now, what are, th- your, what are your thoughts about Pete Rose, his eligibility for the Hall of Fame, given the Houston Astros scandal and how they basically stole the World Series in 2017? Well, I think uh, I think uh, that he's a guy that deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Um, and I've gone full circle on this. I thought when he was thrown out of the game in 1989 that uh, he had he had violated the the single most important rule, a rule that's on the wall of every clubhouse in Major League Baseball, and that's gambling, betting on games. And so I I was full full in in uh, compliance or understanding with the decision rendered by Bart Giamatti. But over the years, um, I, I came around to changing my opinion. Uh, I think uh, when Giamatti made the announcement, he said he needs to reconfigure his life. And I think to a large extent, he did that. Um, and so I, my, my contention is that, you know, you're going to put Pete Rose in as a, as a former player who did great things on the field for the betterment of baseball. And so uh, he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. And I think when this thing came up with Houston and Boston, all that did was resurrect the issue of whether or not Pete should be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I think what happened in Houston and Boston, uh, stealing signs electronically with the aid of monitors and cameras and the whole nine yards is the single worst thing that's ever happened in the game of baseball, second only to the Black Sox scandal of 1919. Um, worse than the steroids scandal, worse than Pete's betting on games. This is a single worst thing that's ever happened uh, next to the Black Sox scandal. So um, if you're going to suspend uh, Jeffrey Lunau, the general manager for a year, and you're going to suspend A.J. Hinch for a year, and no announcement has yet been forthcoming about Boston manager uh, Alex Cora 
who was the architect of both of these situations. He was the bench coach in Houston when that situation occurred, and he was the architect of it. And then he went to Boston, and he was the architect of Boston doing it. So for my money, uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna keep Pete Rose out of the Hall of Fame and keep him banned for life, then you've got to you've got to throw Alex Core out of the game for the rest of his life. You can't you can't let him come back. And uh, I'm amazed. I understand that the the, the uh, coronavirus pandemic has is is really put a lot of other things on hold as far as baseball and everything else is concerned. But we were supposed to get a decision on the commissioner's uh, uh, penalties against the Red Sox. We were supposed to get the final decision on that. It'll be a month ago, a month ago today, a month ago today, he was going to render a decision and he has not done it yet. Now, again, I understand that he has far more important things to worry about right now. Still at all, if he'd have made the announcement when he was going to, that was before all this virus stuff came up. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I'm not a big fan. I'm not a big fan of Rob Manfred. Um, I think he's handled this sign-stealing thing about as poorly as anybody could possibly handle it. Um, uh, But be that as it may, that's a story for another day. I I think that Pete definitely should be in the Hall of Fame. And and I think there's a level of hypocrisy that exists uh, when you go to visit the, the hall in Cooperstown as a fan you can hardly turn around without seeing some mention of Pete Rose and his accomplishments as a player. And they, they extol the virtues of those things because it's for the betterment of the game of baseball. Uh, he broke a record that will never, ever be challenged as far as I'm concerned. Um, so you can, you, can, you can extol the virtues of the game by pointing up the great things he did as a player but he's still not, uh, you still won't let him in. And I, I think it's talking out of both sides of your mouth. And I think there's a level, if, if you want to keep Pete Rose out of the hall of fame, then you take every mention of Pete Rose out of the hall. There should be nothing in the, in that hall of fame that promotes the game because of the great things that Pete did as a player. Then you need to take those out. Now, if you're going to let him in, then God, absolutely. Uh, all the wonderful things he did should be promoted. But yeah, I, I just think they that the Hall has not treated it very well either. Well, I certainly can't agree more. And Marty, uh, this has really been special today. It's the one time I think a podcast deserves 90 minutes or so rather than the typical 45 or 50 minutes. Um, and I thought I would close the podcast with a quote from one of the greatest sports announcers of all time. That is Bob Costas. Costas is somebody I've I've admired my entire life. He's a 12-time National Sportscaster of the Year. He's done a variety of sports. And we contacted Bob for our book. And we asked him if he would say something about you that maybe we could use in the book. And so I'm going to read from our chapter that we call Extra Innings, what Bob Costas told us on February 4th, 2020. Quote, Great local announcers forge a bond with their audiences that no network announcer, no matter how talented, can match. This bond is especially true in baseball because of its daily schedule, its leisurely pace, and its rich history of 
and generational connections. Through all of the memorable and sometimes forgettable seasons, Marty Brenneman punctuated Red's victories with his signature, and this one belongs to the Reds. But in truth, it went both ways. For nearly half a century, Marty belonged to the Reds, to their fans, and to the city of Cincinnati. He is their Hall of Fame voice, an enduring part of their team's history, just as much as the Hall of Fame players whose exploits he described. Unquote. And Marty, I, I couldn't agree more with Bob Costas. I mean, you are a treasure for this city. I speak on behalf of every Reds fan when I just say thank you for your 46 years. So I really appreciate your time today. I enjoyed it, pal. Uh, good questions. Uh, uh, it's been a good uh, over 90 minutes of conversation, and I've certainly appreciated the opportunity. Well, that was a lot to cover today. And I hope the listeners enjoyed our conversation with Marty Brenneman. It has been an honor to speak with Marty, and we appreciate his graciousness in giving us so much of his time. And I hope you will tune in again as we approach opening day, whenever that will be. This is Randy Freaking signing off and in the immortal words of, well, Marty, why don't you just say it? So long, everybody. 